Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby and this week we take a look back at this month's episodes in conversation with Martin Adams from Codec, Jonathan Wood from C2 Cyber and our budget special hosted by Ori Clark's very own Richard Ori, Ian Phipps, Simon Walsh, Jeremy Coker and my co-host Andrew Ori. Coming up are new unheard parts of conversations that take a deeper look at the topics we discussed. First up is Martin Adams telling us about the three top business trends he's got his eye on at the moment, as well as giving holistic advice for up-and-coming entrepreneurs. Now, it's at this stage of the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, that we come to the money shot, the the, the audio equivalent of the money shot, the, the, the question we all want to know the answer to. Tell us what trends you can see at the moment. Give us two or three things you're looking at that you think might grow into something bigger. Okay, so huge, huge investment in um, sort of self-care. So people are finally really viewing themselves as individuals, interestingly. So people's kind of uh, hygiene habits around things like meditation, around exercise, all of those things absolutely obviously on the on the the rise and the rise and the rise and people are putting those things first um interestingly so we're um uh, it's kind of uh, you can see in the online behavior people are starting to do their meditation their exercise etc first thing in the morning because they know that they actually can't get through the day if they don't it's kind of it's gone off face doing it at the end of the day more like but yeah you know yeah yeah i mean it's just this it's just it's almost a sort of survival um mechanism so i i i see businesses that are helping individuals sort of self care meditation apps um uh you know kind of sound therapy uh, all of these types of things are going to be absolutely uh, huge you know, it won't surprise you to hear that there is definitely trends towards essentially alternative education. So exactly like you mentioned around sort of the preserve of government to offer normally kind of the best, most trusted, most credible education uh, provision is definitely sort of under threat. There's a whole there's a whole class of these digitally nomadic or kind of socially, professionally mobile people who are very active conversations around what does an education company look like that allows me to live and work across the globe, doesn't totally undermine my child's sort of social development. And I'm personally super, super interested in that. But, you know, it, honestly, it's, it's, it's a, it's, we're at the level of survival at the moment. Like if you look at sort of Maslow's hierarchy, the last few, you know, last year has been just how can I get through the day? What, what investments can I make in myself that mean I'm still standing at the end of the day? And then over the last few months, literally since kind of last few weeks with the announcements in the UK especially, we're sort of starting to see people move up Maslow's hierarchy a little bit and start sort of starting to kind of work out how do I thrive in this new working environment? How do I structure my work? How do I structure my children's education? What does my relationship look like now? So it's it's very interesting to see that reflected. 
and my friend Chris put it really succinctly to me, like early on in the crisis when uh, he, he, he was, um, uh, he just says, when you can't go out, you've got to go in. And it was like, you know, it's all about meditation and mushrooms and whatever. <laughs> my eldest son, who's now at Bristol University, in his final year at school, we just fell out with the school and he was just, he was going, Dad, please don't make me go back there. And it was two days before the um, term began. I thought, oh Christ, so... I didn't make him go back and we just found some tutors on him on for a, on a website called Tutor Hunt. And then after a couple of weeks, I was like, do you know what? This is really good. And do you know what? This is better than the school. And do you know what? This is cheaper than the school. And so we ended up doing his final year. He was self-tutored at home and he got his grades and he got into Bristol University. So, you know, I will gladly tell any person who's prepared to listen, <laughs> last man standing in the pub, were the pubs actually open, that story at great length because... You know, it works, and I've become such a huge advocate of it. I'll push the narrative. It's something like it was in the. You told me not to read the Economist, but it was in the Economist. It's like ten percent of people are not. What well, are not going to send their kids back to school? It's like what? I didn't know it was that high. Oh, so they're considering it anyway. You know, I think there's an interesting. You know, almost. Uh, what does the WeWork of education look like? You know, where the Soho House of Education, where you've got numerous kind of networked physical facilities um, in probably the most obvious sort of cities in the world where, you know, people who, are, who have a digital profession and can move around those cities will move around those cities and they want their child to be able to kind of stick to some sort of curriculum, some sort of program, but they can do it freely, you know, whether they're in New York or Barcelona or London or Mexico City. And, um, you know, and, and, and again, you know, I, I think it has to be back. That, that, is, that, that would suit the digitally mobile parents who I think at least 10%, you know, of, 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 of certain workforces are going to want to be that, you know, and, and live that life for a few years at least. And it has to just be balanced, I guess, with the, the social welfare of the child. Sure. That, that we work of education is wonderful because I just pray that it happens because that will expose how inefficiently used school premises are in their current form. You see absolute fortunes spent on school premises. They're often in prime locations, uh, really expensive buildings, and half the time they're empty. And it, we're back to that thing that we talked about at the beginning of the show of, of, of tech exposing, you know, the failings of government systems and gradually replacing them. Yeah, and if, if I was government and I was, uh, you know, trying to make sure there isn't, either an international exodus or a, um, you know, or there isn't a kind of exodus to the country. Um, if I wanted to keep my city strong, you know, maybe education needs to happen sort of in those more inner city, you know, locations and things like that. So there's a whole raft of, uh, it's a complex issue, of course, but I would love to see that exist as someone with, a, you know, with a child who would like to be able to live that more flexible lifestyle but not to compromise on on her development. I would love to have an option. Soho House and the WeWork, you're, you're expressing that it could be an international thing. You join and you can chuck your kids in different places. And Absolutely. A membership of sorts, you know, and it, it may not be the absolute full provision, might be just a kind of top-up thing, but I, you know, uh, yeah, I think the world is not getting any less global. I think COVID um, has pushed us into a, you know, super super form of globalization and the education system probably needs to ask itself 
all companies need to ask themselves how they're going to um, respond to that. And I haven't seen an awful lot of response so far, which surprises me because education has been one of the least... Well, it's been they one just of the want their kids to go back to school. Most people I know are just fucking like they can't handle it, the homeschooling. <laughs> but they were ill-prepared for it. Do you know? There was no... The only person, people I know who don't mind it, who took a much more open-minded approach, my friend Joe, who was much more like, well, I threw away the curriculum and I just started writing lists of shit. We're just going to learn that I think it's interesting, you know, and we had a great time. I think it makes a difference how big your house is as well. And again, people can afford more space further away from cities. Martin, you've given us the sort of the mindfulness trend and the education trend. Can you give us one more? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. you know what the 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 problem is the um the world of culture has been undernourished you know honestly the net the last um yeah it's been undernourished the last year right we're watching stuff that was made a year ago um and, and and not really particularly new stuff i mean the one thing i will say that's absolutely clear across a hugely diverse demographic range of communities is sort of basically a consciousness around personal finance. So people are, for the first time, those who have been lucky enough to stay in you know, a job um, and haven't had their earnings kind of depleted too much. Obviously, their, their costs, large, generally speaking, in terms of disposable income, like coffees and restaurants and you know, travel have all gone down. And there's absolutely unambiguous data showing genuine interest in sort of the vanguards of this world and um, setting up a SIP for the first time and using your ISA allowance. And I think a lot of it's people being at home all day. And so they start day training a bit as well. That, that happens. Absolutely. And then they maybe realize that they, they're losing money day trading and they're like, just give me the basic, you know, tax efficient wrappers and whatever else. But yeah, definitely personal finance and, and personalities arising within um, the kind of personal finance space, I think is a, is, is, is a trend that won't go away even when people have the opportunity to spend money as they used to. I think there'll be more of a consciousness and more of a kind of squirreling away a bit of your money at the beginning of the month so you don't spend it all, which um, for good or bad. You, you know, I, I, we've known each other a while, but you know, you're, you, you've, you've had to build a very complex company. So you're, you're a busy man. And it's always, it's always struck me... Um, you know how much the the job of a startup is is you know as the CEO is is as my brother would put it you know is you 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 got to look after the people and you got to look after the vision and and a lot of that is like you know your the demand on you to keep getting the story and the vision out there to raise money to you know say this is what we're doing and stuff you know do you have any advice to any other CEOs in regard to doing that you know staying positive and or whatever. Yeah, look, I think the, my first bit of advice would be before you decide to do it. Um, you know, I left a very cushy, you know, New York job um, as, as an IP lawyer. And, you know, having, a, having an English accent in New York is just unfair. You know, like, it's just fantastic <laughs> um, professionally and personally and everything else. And kind of left that to come back and, and start my own thing. And... Um, you know, there's definitely been a lot of sort of fetishism of the startup world over the last 10, 15 years. And I don't, and I think it's really dangerous because running a business successfully for longer than a year, you know, most business, most startups fail, about 95%, I believe. And most of them fail within the first year or two. 
So you really need to be pretty convinced that you are doing this for irrational reasons. Like you shouldn't be doing it because you think you're going to become a millionaire overnight. You shouldn't be doing it because it's cool and you'll get kind of status among your peer group. You should be doing it because you're, you genuinely see an insight into solving a problem in a different way. And you're passionate about solving that problem and you're willing to sacrifice quite a lot. Um, and the people around you are willing to sacrifice quite a lot. Uh, to support you on that journey. So my first bit of advice would be, you know, speak to people who have run businesses for a while and get the honest take as to, um, uh, you know, the trade-offs involved because they're very real. And once you are running, uh, you know, once you are running a business, I think it's really just important. Your, your media diet is really, really important. So again, even within the startup community, there's a, you know, there's definitely like, we were sort of talked to my brother and he says like there's certain people who would go to the opening of an envelope, you know, like they basically go to every startup event and all they ever do is network and all they ever do is kind of be present, but you don't really ever see them actually building their startup. And inevitably six months, a year down the line, those businesses fail. And so I have taken a very conscious, intentional choice, like not to really consume, not to really do that stuff, not to really check my Facebook and LinkedIn for those types of people and more to kind of have a different media diet, which is about like, you know, fundamental, the, the spiritual side of, um, of entrepreneurship and the, and the personal development side of entrepreneurship. And exactly like you said, Andy, you know, the, the teamwork side, like building something with a group of people and leaning into those more special and, you know, almost semi-sacred um, aspects of freedom and autonomy and creativity and, less the status, less the, I'm cool, I'm doing a startup. And, and, and I think it's a much more sustainable and likely to be uh, effective approach. Up next is more from Jonathan Wood talking about the realities of transitioning from military life back to normal living. How the entrepreneurial community can work closely with the military to facilitate transitions back into work. And how Jonathan likes to approach managing his company's workforce and productivity. When... I left school. I remember thinking I would like to join the army because I had this idea in my head that it would be really good training for life, you know, the discipline of the army and so on. And yet, when you see there, you know, if you look at the homeless, there is a disproportionately large percentage of homeless people who have served in the military in some way or other. And, you know, there are, you know, a lot of army people end up unemployed you know they don't necessarily go on to great things you know what why is that is that because they suddenly use the lose the discipline of army life and they don't know what to do without it or is it because they've seen such horrible things during their service they never fully recovered what why is that um so so the the ptsd piece presumably pays a plot i i'm not sure um uh, whether that pertains to all all cases i doubt it does Lots of people um, go out to some of the campaigns, they come back, they've seen some fairly uh, unpleasant things, done some fairly unpleasant things, uh, and they're fine. And they end up out in the real world in a in a different job should uh, should they leave. But uh, I, I think that that also comes back to my resettlement piece, that the people that don't manage the transition well from the military to the civilian world, it is the responsibility, in my view, of the people that employed them beforehand to help them with that transition. And when they end up homeless or similar and not by choice, that, that does make me quite grumpy. How do they, how, why do they end up homeless? Because they can't, 
They don't don't have um, the, there's a phenomenal amount done by the military whilst you're in that if you join when you're um, a boy soldier, boy sailor, and and you and you, you never know any different, and your laundry's done, and um, somebody does some ironing, and there's a mess where you can get food basically 24 hours a day, and your rooms are sorted out, or you're encouraged to do it yourself. And there's a big fence around the place you live. It's nice and safe. There's a guy with a, a rifle on the front gate. Nobody is going to steal your bike from outside your mess, right? Unless it's one of your friends. And then they they moved to central London. And so I left um, the Navy, borrowed a room out of a mate's flat in Fulham when I first joined BT. Left my bike outside a restaurant in um, uh, uh, Kings Road somewhere, some Thai restaurant. Came out with my brother no bicycle. Um, and I thought I had like the world's best lock, but turns out I didn't. And, and and I probably did everything right. The police actually, fair play to the Met, they got it back. I described my bike, because I'm a geek engineer, down to basically every nut and bolt. And they said, oh, we know we found it in this kid's bedroom. And he'd stolen so many bicycles, we're going to do him for money laundering instead of just theft. So uh, that was interesting. But the, the resettlement piece, back to your question, Dominic, the that is their responsibility. And I think they're taking it more seriously, but that doesn't change what you can see on the street and in other places, that people join and everything is done for you. If you're on a ship, you've got your own job and you work really hard, but because everyone's rowing the boat in the same direction, food appears and laundry gets done and all that stuff happens. Out in the real world, you get a direct debit for electricity and gas and council tax and stuff. There's no such thing as council tax if you're living in the mess. And that all comes as a bit of a surprise. It's almost like while you're in the military, there needs to be a transition for three years where you sort of slowly pay council tax, slowly get your bike nicked, slowly... Right. Steady, steady on with the taxes, but, um, but get your bike nicked. Thank you. Um, but uh, but I, I don't think I'm I'm making a complete hash of it, that there is there is a lot of transition stuff to do. And a lot of it gets assumed or certainly got assumed. I think they have got a lot better. That doesn't fix it for the people that are already have fallen through the net, though, to your point, Dominic. Yeah, they give you like two days of decompression in Cyprus on the way back from Iraq. That, that process should get a lot better, yeah. Uh, so actually, I didn't get any of that. So I went straight from Kabul um, via Ramstein because I flew US Air Force. Someone from Belgium picked me up and dropped me off at my flat. So I reckon it probably took me about 15 hours to go from a combat zone to the middle of Belgium. And that was a bit weird. So walking around in the supermarket, seeing things in plastic boxes, that was all very strange. Yeah, there used to be loads of gigs for comedians in the noughties and you'd get, you'd fly out to Cyprus and you'd perform to these soldiers, you know, who just just had their mate killed in Iraq or just killed somebody in Iraq or experienced some horror. And they literally had two days of of decompression in Cyprus. And it was like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll stick on a comedian. That'll make it better. <laughs> yeah, behind a fence, hopefully, for your safety. Yeah. Um, and and there's, there was also, uh, there's quite a lot of entertainment laid on, uh, usually beers. And and that's not always the thing you need when you're trying to no, decompress. No, it's very good at relieving short-term issues, alcohol, isn't it? But very bad at the medium. How does the does the does the military need to engage more with the entrepreneurial community or something to sort of 
you know, find paths for its 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 employees. So, so I think there's a scale problem there. So they go through lots and lots and lots of people, and so there are always lots of people joining. There are always thousands of people leaving. I, I'm going to triple the size of my company and hire a whacking 20 people this year. That isn't going to move the dial. So I understand why they have to do things in like bigger handfuls. But but they the, between those layers, there could be more structure, I think, um, in terms of handing the jobs out. What would you say to, because the, mind you, you're on your own, but you know, a few people might listen to this and it's always good to get the word out. What, would, you, would you recommend other entrepreneurs and where do they go to find veterans? So you mean other, other companies yeah. where... Uh, would, you, would, you, would you tell them to go and find vets? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and actually, we've done some dinners in um, C2 um, at the Honourable Artillery Company in, in City Road, where I've actually crashed together some of those um, organisations and people, not usually the smaller ones, because I'm also hunting for clients at the same time. And so, um, but, but all those links get made. Uh, and the mentoring stuff is key. Uh, there aren't that many people that have gone straight from the military to building companies from the ground up, that takes a phenomenal amount of arrogance because otherwise you'd constantly be thinking, no, 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 I'm not qualified to do that. The other thing that the government could do, I've been diligently filling out all the surveys for things like G Cloud 12, the procurement framework, and that's how the government gets to choose from a catalogue from any company, whether it's an enormous multinational to a little C2. And they always go for the multinationals. It's quite difficult to get a gig with the uh, government and it shouldn't be that way. So if you're ticking the boxes and you've got your accreditations for security, they should choose you on the basis of uh, best value and best capability, not because uh, you're the largest. You know that phrase, like no one ever got fired for hiring IBM? Sure, but many more people in the UK are employed by SMEs than by large multinationals. So, so actually. I've taken the time to fill out all your forms. You need to read it. That would be good. I think there are lots of SMEs that will benefit from that. I find that um, actually in some ways politics reduced by not being in the office. I can give you simple examples like there's a sort of jealousy if if someone does a job similar to you or let's take a simple example. If you hired two people to do a similar job and they turned up at the same time in the office or you know one of them arrived in the first week and then the other one arrived a week later, there's a kind of tension there about, oh, well, you know, what are they doing and what am I doing and what am I doing with my life anyway? And there's a little bit of sort of, I don't know, oh, it's all right for them, you know, or they're going for lunch early. And all of that disappears because none of us can see what each other are doing. So I found some things in the firm almost easier to manage. It's like, oh, well, that person only talks to me. So they don't they don't know that that person's over there is also doing a, a similar research project because they would probably undermine it. But the flip, the bit you're talking about is for some reason, when you lack physicality, you slowly resent someone like over time. I don't know what it is. You just slowly think, yeah, I don't like this person. I think there's certainly some of that. Um, but but it, it's not so much about that they don't like each other, it's that they don't even know each other. And and you know, so the remote pieces, they don't even know they're there. Um, and so we we used to, because lots of people are um, with clients or in, in sites where they can't, um, can't visit or whatever, um, we used to have a morning call anyway, even before the pandemic. And we'd all swap what we were doing and who needed what from somebody else and all this stuff. And we just kept that going. And that, that's been quite useful in the morning. It's not, it's not perfect. And new joiners 
need to figure out how it works. Um, I think that's going to get harder. But I, I think people, you, you look up in the room and say, what's the code for the door or the phone or the uh, photocopier? Do you want a coffee? Now you have to plan that in, put in a Teams invite to say, what's the code for the photocopier? Um, or do you want a coffee? And everything takes half hour chunks. This program, yeah, yeah. That, that's not human. Um, and and so you know you need to be able to toss your laptop up in the air, particularly if you've got one of these new ones that I discovered earlier doesn't work terribly well with attachments. Um, and and go out for a coffee when you're in the office and people are around. You can just sort of you can smell who's doing working harder than other people. You can see who's doing a good job, who isn't. That's the myth. And then sometimes. You know, the more manipulative people in the office will make out to the boss that they're doing a better job than they actually are and perhaps take credit for something that sh- when the credit should have gone to something else. How do you know? How do you deal with all of that? Well, the, 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 I mean, you know, Jonathan's up, but it's slightly a myth. The, the, you're talking about the old thing is control. If I can see you working, then you're doing really well. You ask a good question. How do you re- recognize productivity? What do you do, Jonathan? Um, so we ours is mostly outcome-based. So uh, I I really don't care if somebody is at home and they want to go to Sainsbury's at two o'clock in the afternoon because it's quiet in Sainsbury's, then um, fill your boots. As long as your job gets done um, and you're not missing customers or suppliers or you know, your targets in terms of business development, if you're in sales or um, you know, if there are trouble tickets in technical uh, outstanding and you've decided to take the afternoon off, I'd query whether they were urgent trouble tickets or not, but um, it swings aroundabouts. Everyone's stuck in their houses with their kids, dogs, families, all that sort of stuff. Um, so maybe they need to go out for a walk. And uh, but uh, the flip side of that is they're not commuting, right? So my particular query is: if you used to have to get on a train at seven twenty-two in the morning to get into the office, and then you leave the office at five to get on the six o'clock to get home for seven. You're out of the house for 12 hours. So in that 12-hour period, you can go walking up hills as much as you like, but you also need to get your job done. Um, and and so I, I think there's been a lot of learning how to work from home for people that don't know how to do it. There's always that bathroom door to paint or that shelf to put up, right? And And you need to keep them focused on what pays the bills rather than just DIY. It's all, it's supposed to be all about output as, as you're saying, you know, trying to measure that they, they get whatever it is done. It's not as easy to work that out as, as you think. And we suffer from a problem that as professionals, we have to collaborate a lot. So the advantage of people all working similar hours is you can all pick up the phone to each other and discuss things a lot. So you're slightly forcing that metric. If people say, oh, I'm going to work in the evening and I'm going to work in the morning, then that's quite problematic if you two need to talk about a complex subject and you find that if you're not on similar uh, patterns of behavior, it's like sod's law. It's like every time you go, oh, no, that's the day they're off. I find it, I, I, I used to argue with my dad about this, but I now see his point. Like people who work three days a week, it's really tricky because the day you need them is always, oh, that's their day off. And then you're like, oh, yeah. do I disturb They them? might be in, in four days' time and <laughs> that's not going to help you turn the problem around with the customer. Oh, We haven't had too much of that. Most people are still working at what I'd call a, a regular sort of London hours uh, day. And and we don't have that much in the international sphere. We've got quite a few bits of work on in Japan and some of the East Coast of America. 
And so I do get calls at funny times of the day or I'm invited to conference calls at odd times. But you can just build that in. Frankly, that's a lot easier than having to wait around in the office to do something. And lastly, Ori Clark's very own Ian Phipps and Richard Ori tell us more about the new UK budget, in particular about the new requirements for EMI schemes, which stands for Enterprise Management Incentives, as well as Richard explaining what the UK needs to do to get free ports working. Have we discussed the Enterprise Management Incentive working requirements? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, this is quite a straightforward one. This is just, it's, it's just a relief that obviously the enterprise management incentive is probably the best approved share option scheme, you know, available pretty much anywhere in the world. Actually, it's a very generous scheme. It has very generous benefits. But one of the things is that, you know, for somebody to benefit from that share option relief, and I don't need to go into the detail of the relief, they ha- there's minimum working requirements. So typically, they've worked, that's work 25 hours a week or whatever in the business. And there's various... You know, other restrictions. So, and obviously what's happened is, and this has been a big concern since the beginning of lockdown, is people who haven't been able to work through being furloughed or literally their business is, you know, just the business is closed. You know, they might be a manager of a Weatherspoons pub. Then if they can't work, then there was the risk that would these EMI options they've already got, you know, fall out and, and be disqualified. Um, but the government have made it clear that that's not going to be the case. It was certainly the case up till March this year that anything that had happened you know that that if if because of covid impact they couldn't work those those minimum number of hours required by the legislation they wouldn't be penalized and the good news from the budget is that's been extended now through to march 22 so you know they've accepted that this year is another you know the tax year from 6th of april 21 to 35th of april 22 is going to be equally disrupted so they've just said you know you know you don't need to worry too much about the hours um there's obviously lots of fine print in the detail but that's the overall view that you know people with emi benefits are not going to lose them as a result of not being able to work. Yeah. And can I add, um, EMI applies to employees and to office holders, to directors. So if you are a director or an employee of a company, and if you fulfill the minimum working requirements, which are 25 hours a week or 75% of your working time. So directors are unusual, and this has been borne out through the crisis as well, is directors' duties aren't technically employment, and as such, they are not technically part of minimum wage legislation if the director does not have a contract. So as is common with a lot of startups, you have directors who are um, not paid initially or paid very little, and they can fall outside these rules, but they can definitely be doing 25 hours a week, um, thanks to uh, some kind work of uh, Simon. But um, it, it has become clear to us that um, you must ensure that the individual is paid at least a minimum wage if you wanted to be eligible for an EMI incentive. So it's a sort of side point, but an important point for entrepreneurial businesses that just because you're a director and you don't have to fulfill any minimum wage law or pay yourself anything and you're working sufficient hours, that is not enough to be eligible for EMI. You do actually have to receive a minimum wage. Okay. Now, why don't we bring Richard back into the uh, conversation and um, Richard, I know you wanted to talk about free ports. What, what are your thoughts on free ports? Uh, I think they're excellent if we get it right, but they're going to need a lot of investment because what you want is not just a bunch of warehouses, you also want uh, manufacturing capabilities. One of the problems that's emerging is with the EU is that if your goods are not substantially of uh, origin of the UK, 
then you have a real problem because when you export them, they will put duty on the goods. So a lot of goods that are being imported, which may be 60% uh, Japanese, say, and you're adding 40% value, you end up shipping them off to the continent and paying WTO tariffs on them, which is really crippling, uh, puts you at a considerable disadvantage. Um, so the idea of a free port where you can bring the goods in and not pay the duty, manufacture or process them in, in, in other ways, maybe even just breaking down shipment, uh, means you'll create employment, you'll create profits in the UK, and you'll still be competitive in the continent. So they need to be able to move goods around without bringing them in, paying tax in the UK, and then paying tax again when they're re-exported. Understood. And, and Ian, was was there a great deal of focus in the budget on free ports? I don't think, I mean, it was one of the things, there's been a lot of political um, commentary about where, you know, where, where these are situated or where they're going to be situated. But I think, I mean, it was more a question to me of, you know, there's a lot of tax incentives for there. You can, you know, you can buy property there, stamp duty free if you're going to use it for a qualifying business, etc. There's a lot of incentives. I was just referring back and I just thought, for those of us who are old, um, as Richard's already alluded to, um, you know, we had these enterprise zones in the 80s, um, which were sort of trying to do a similar thing in terms of let's attract lots of investment into these areas. And I'm I'm not sure how, I think long term, Richard, I think you'd agree, they, you know, they, they, they did, a lot of people went there, but I don't think it ever really regenerated anything massively. I don't think there was ever a really massive long-term benefit. Most of them ended up just not being enterprise zones anymore, I think, long-term. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Thank you for joining us, dear listener, and we'll be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, please do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at biz b-i-z without b-s that's at biz without b-s where you'll find more helpful business content you can also subscribe to our youtube channel by searching for us using the hashtags biz without b-s and ori clark that's b-i-z without b-s and hashtag ori clark o-u-r-y clark until next week it's cheerio